0: Men, Please be seated. Children who are uh, age four through third grade can go to Children's Chapel now. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, you can open to Psalm 2. The text was just a little bit long to um, print in the bulletins this morning. Psalm 2. And while you're turning there, Let me give another announcement. um, We've got um, another thing coming up in September. Is uh, we're going to restart our home groups, and so right now we've got two home groups uh, that are in the works. We've got one meeting at the Ulchie's house that Chip's going to lead Monday nights at seven, and then we've got one at our house that Brian Friesen's going to lead Wednesday nights at six thirty. And I think it would be good if we got maybe one more group going. So if you're interested in that, uh, just let me know. Um, but those will start in the middle of September. And our plan right now is to go over this book together. It's uh, Tim Keller's book called The Meaning of Marriage. And I know not everybody in our church is married, um, so they might not all think that it's relevant. But uh, he gives a, a nice reason early on in this book um, why he thinks it's, it's helpful to people even who are not married uh, that's because um, if you're looking to get married at some point, uh, you need to know what marriage is about. And for all of the, uh, those of us who have been married for, um, for years even, uh, we, we still may not know what marriage is all about. <laughs> so we need to look at this book together. We've, um, uh, and let, me, let me admonish you right now. Um, if, if you are married, uh, you probably need to come see me for counseling. I don't, uh, you might not think so, but you probably do. So just do that before you think you need uh, to. Um, but but this will be a great book for us to go through. It's an excellent book that was uh, based on a series of sermons that Tim Keller gave in maybe the early 90s. And you can find those sermons online at uh, Redeemer's website. He's the pastor of Redeemer uh, PCA Church in Manhattan. Um, but, you know, you, you could go along with the book by listening to those sermons. They're great sermons. So, uh, Look forward for uh, more information to come on uh, spe- specifics regarding home groups. Okay, so Psalm 2. Uh, psalm 2 is a royal psalm, and it accompanies Psalm 1 at the uh, beginning of the Psalter as an introduction. It kind of sets the tone for the book. You remember Psalm 1 last week is a wisdom psalm uh, that we covered. So you've got wisdom and royal psalms standing at the entrance. Um, of the book, and it's, uh, <clears throat> there are some uh, linguistic, grammatical, thematic ties between the two, uh, and there's one author, G.K. Beale, who kind of points a bunch of those out. I'm not going to do that. You're uh, just going to have to take it for granted that uh, Psalm 1 and 2 serve kind of as an introduction to the Psalms. And Psalm 2 is um, a psalm about the, the coronation of the human king of Israel. Um, It's about the the special status that's been granted to him by God, and it's it's about the way that the Gentile nations are to relate to that king. And it's very interesting to me, anyway, that at the beginning of the Psalms, which is a book of prayers and praises to Yahweh, it's the one true God who is absolutely jealous for your loyalty, for your devotion, and will not share his glory with another— Uh, At the beginning of that book of Psalms, we have uh, a royal psalm commanding submission and allegiance to a human king. Um, We'll talk about that as we go along. King David uh, is kind of the the ultimate version of this, right, in the Old Testament. King David himself was no stranger to conflict with the Gentiles as a boy. uh, Probably most of you learned in Sunday school or um, even in popular culture, (laughs) as a boy, he um, met the challenge of the giant warrior Right? Goliath of Gath, and as a, as a king of, of, of Israel, he conquered the Amalekites, the Ammonites, Edomites, Moabites, Philistines, and Syrians. It's all these Gentile nations that were surrounding Israel. Uh, many Gentile nations came under the authority of his kingdom, and their kings paid tribute then to David as the great king. Uh, it says in 2 Samuel chapter 8 that the Lord, Yahweh, gave victory to David wherever he went, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. So he treated his subjects with honor and dignity, even pardoning those. uh, We see that so many times in uh, the book of Samuel, uh, pardoning those who had previously been his fierce enemies who pursued him to death, right? Um, Nevertheless, uh, his kindness aside, it seemed that people were rarely satisfied to be subject to his rule. Um, It seemed like there were a lot of rebellions. And this psalm could also be understood with reference to his descendants, not just to King David, uh, as actually he's not mentioned in this psalm, but um, it could be understood with reference to his descendants who ruled in Jerusalem in Judah uh, after him. But David is the representative of them, so I'll probably use his name a lot. Uh, Psalm 2 expresses confidence in God's ability to subdue the enemies of his chosen king And it encourages those who are subject to that king's authority to respond to him wisely, right? Um, And uh, in Romans chapter 15, Paul writes that uh, whatever was written in former days, so this psalm included, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And that's kind of a key verse in uh, Romans 15, verse 4 for uh, understanding that the Old Testament is still relevant to us, right? Uh, It means that this psalm, Psalm 2, has application in history beyond King David as he uh, wrestled with the kingdoms surrounding ancient Israel. How, you might ask, does a royal psalm written 3,000 years ago about Near Eastern kings and tributaries uh, relate to me today, a 21st century housewife or engineer or student or teacher, um, Glad you asked. Let's find out. Uh, let's, uh, let's pray together and then we'll read Psalm 2. Father, we come to you for help this morning as we um, look at your word. We pray that your wor- word would rule over us, that you would help us to uh, place ourselves beneath its authority. For some of us, that is, uh, leaves a bad taste in our mouths. It's uh, something that we uh, don't naturally Come to. So we need your Holy Spirit to enter our lives, our hearts, our minds, and to use your word um, for our good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this psalm opens up with the uh, rhetorical question, in verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? In the original setting of the psalm, the nations, or the, the goyim, uh, were the Gentiles that David had conquered, that were um, the subjects of the kings of Israel for some time. And they were tumultuous, seething, raging under Uh, his rule to the degree where they began planning uprisings or rebellions they were just always looking for ways to uh, kick against the goads right Uh, and um, it says in verses two and three the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against yahweh and against his anointed Uh, anointed is uh, in hebrew the word where we get the word messiah uh, which in greek is translated as christ so against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the conquered kings who'd been made to serve Israel, they collaborated and they schemed together against Yahweh and against the Davidic king who'd been anointed. Uh, that was what happened when you were chosen as a king. Uh, you were anointed with oil set apart uh, for that uh, royal office. And these kings, these conquered kings, wanted to destroy And discard the authority that was over them to free themselves from the rule of God's kingdom. Um, And this plotting is called vain or empty or futile um, because they're talking about rebelling against the total sovereignty of God himself. Um, For all of our striving as mere mortals, creatures that God has made by uh, the word of his power, it's a thing that just simply cannot be done uh, to cast off his authority from us, to cast off his sovereignty over us, even if the greatest among us, our kings and our rulers, came up with a great plan, right? even if all the nations of the earth united together against him. It says in Psalm 115, God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. It says in Isaiah 40, behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him. they are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. It says in our our passage in verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Any resistance that the Gentile nations might offer is humorously futile. Um, Almighty God looks down from his throne in heaven and says, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. But he only laughs for a moment. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, who speaks a word and his enemies die by the thousands. He warns these scheming Gentile kings to their great dismay, you cannot alter the fact that I, I myself have given you into David's hand. Zion, uh, the place where he has set his king, Zion is the place where God's authoritative presence abides. And David's throne is unassailable there on that holy mountain, uh, protected by the will and the might of God himself. And then in verse 7, we hear uh, the Davidic king's voice. So it's not God speaking anymore, it's the human king. <clears throat> he says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, Yahweh said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. It's probably helpful to notice that um, this, this is in the past tense, the Lord said to me. Right? The king uh, is remembering the fact that God had, had um, uh, backed him up. He's supported him. Right? He has anointed him as king of Israel and is probably recalling God's covenant promise to the king in 2 Samuel chapter seven, where, um, where God says this to, to David, "'When your days are fulfilled "'and you lie down with your fathers, "'I will raise up your offspring after you, "'who shall come from your body, "'and I will establish his kingdom. "'He shall build a house for my name, "'and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. "'I will be to him a father, "'and he shall be to me a son, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So uh, in the face of this rising threat from the plotting Gentile kings, the Davidic king was encouraged and strengthened by the relationship that he had with God, which God himself had initiated. God said to his king, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them, or maybe a better translation is you shall rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God had already uh, proven this to David. Whenever David went out to battle, he consulted Yahweh in prayer. And every time, God gave his enemies into his hand. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, He says. He said to the Davidic king, all you need to do is ask. I'll give you all authority to the ends of the earth. Now, as we get to the the final stanza in verses uh, 10 and 12, 10 through 12, it looks like this psalm is also written um, actually for the the well-being of the Gentiles. Uh, That's the explicit application of it anyway. It says, now, therefore, since God has said this, Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So considering what you just heard, if you know what's good for you, you'll serve Yahweh and honor his king. The king that God has declared to be his son, and the heir of all the nations. The restless kings of the conquered nations are to have an attitude of fearful joy toward God. They're to submit themselves to his service and pay homage or swear fealty to the Davidic king. And this will give them a place of happy security in his kingdom. Maybe you remember uh, some of the stories of David's life where his former enemies were welcomed into his very household at his, uh, t- to eat at his table every day. Right? It gives you a place of security in his kingdom. Otherwise, if you don't uh, swear fealty and pledge your allegiance to uh, this king, uh, you'll suffer the king's wrath and you'll die. Right? Seems like pretty good power politics <laughs> to me. Um, So, how was this psalm written not just for David and not just for his enemies, the enemies of his kingdom, but for our instruction? Uh, We actually don't have to work too hard to figure that out. Uh, The apostles interpreted Psalm 2 for us when they prayed it in Acts chapter 4, which we read in our New Testament reading this morning. It's always been the practice of God's people to pray through the psalms, uh, to pray through the word of God, but especially the psalms. Uh, And in Acts chapter 4, we're given an inspired example of this. We're shown how it's done, um, how to use Psalm 2 in prayer. You may remember the context in, uh, in Acts, those early chapters. Jesus had been crucified, and then God had raised him from the dead, and he had given uh, final instructions to his disciples. The apostles it appeared to them several times over the course of uh, several days. And, um, and then Jesus departed from them and ascended into heaven. They had waited, the the apostles, they had waited in Jerusalem, according to Jesus' instruction. And at Pentecost, they received the Holy Spirit, who enabled them to preach the gospel with boldness. And the apostles uh, worked miracles to attest to the truth of the gospel that they were preaching. And one of these miracles was the healing of a man who was crippled from birth. Uh, We'll read some of that from Acts chapter 3. asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So then Peter preached, and it says uh, 5,000 men believed. It's not including uh, in that count probably women and children who were present. The temple rulers didn't like this, right? They arrested Peter and John, and even though they could not dispute the miraculous healing because here was that guy who was lame from birth, who they saw every day, at their entrance to the temple. Here he was standing right next to the apostles. Uh, they, they couldn't dispute that healing. They didn't want to lose their reputation. They didn't want to lose their authority in Jerusalem. So, uh, so Peter and John were threatened, and they were told, Don't you preach Christ anymore. And they were released. And when they were released, they went to their friends, the other disciples. And reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices together to God. And and they prayed, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... when they had prayed, the Holy Spirit filled them again, and they were given boldness to continue proclaiming God's word. This passage shows us uh, an interpretation of Psalm 2 that is inspired by God as the apostles prayed it. Jesus is the ultimate Davidic human king. And he is the one who is set on the holy mountain by God himself. At his entrance into the world, this king uh, coming in... uh, born of a virgin, uh, born as just a little child, as a a helpless little baby. At his entrance into the world, the nations raged and the peoples plotted in vain. Herod the Great plotted to have all the newborn uh, children killed in order to extinguish the life of this Christ, this Messiah, this anointed one. But he couldn't thwart God's plan or overthrow God's true king. At his baptism... Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, and it says in Mark 1, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. At his transfiguration, when, the glory, uh, when his glory was revealed to some of his disciples on top of a mountain, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The nations raged peoples plotted in vain, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, but even in their gathering together against Jesus, as the apostles prayed, they were doing exactly what God had predestined. In God's complete sovereignty, even the devices of the wicked were foreordained to accomplish the plan of his salvation. Their vain plotting served only to position Jesus, to be crowned as the everlasting King, the Lord of heaven and earth. Paul, in the opening verses of his letter to the Romans, speaks of the gospel concerning God's Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, all the Gentiles. Jesus, as the human descendant of King David, was declared to be the Son of God. He was given that title of the Davidic King at his resurrection. And he said to his disciples after his resurrection, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, all the Gentiles. And in Ephesians 1, Paul writes um, about uh, Jesus' ascension into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of God, that God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So now, um, because of his authority, now his apostles' job was to proclaim the gracious rule of God's anointed one to bring about the submission of all the nations. And when the apostles started to preach the gospel of Christ, to proclaim the kingdom of God and his anointed one, they encountered resistance. They encountered rage and vain plotting. Seeing the, uh, the crippled man healed next to the apostles, the Sanhedrin had nothing to say in opposition, nothing to say. So they threatened the apostles and had to let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened. Talk about resistance is futile. So the first application of Psalm 2 for us is this. Either you serve the Lord now with fear or he laughs at you for your folly. Either you rejoice with trembling before God now or he will terrify you when he comes in his fury. Either you kiss the son and you swear your allegiance to him or you perish In the way when his wrath is kindled. Revelation 19 we see a, a, a glorious picture of Jesus as the King. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, is Lord and King. You can't prevent it. You can't protest it. You can't overthrow his rule. Disbelieving it won't help. Your best schemes won't help. Charles Spurgeon said, let good reason weigh with you. Your warfare cannot succeed. Therefore, desist and yield cheerfully to him who will make you bow if you refuse his yoke. The only hope for mutinous nations is submission to the true king. And this psalm invites you, in fact, it commands you to pledge your allegiance to Christ with a loyalty that supersedes all other loyalties in this life. So why continue to rage and plot against him in vain? Not only is it vain, but it's definitely not in your best interest. Because Jesus is a good king. He's the kind who lays down his life for his people, who calls his servants his friends and treats them with honor and dignity that they don't deserve, who protects them from all of their enemies, even death and hell itself. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And Derek Kidner says, there is no refuge from him, only in him. So throw yourself on his mercy and receive his pardon. That's the first application of Psalm 2 for us. The second application of Psalm 2 is this. How did the apostles pray in Acts 4? Did they pray, Sovereign Lord, laugh at your enemies, terrify them, break them with your rod of iron, and dash them into pieces before us. Remove your enemies from the path of your servants. Let them no longer hinder the advancement of your gospel and your kingdom. No. They didn't uh, petition God's sovereignty that way. God's sovereignty doesn't necessarily mean that the people that he loves will be spared from suffering and persecution in this world, suffering for his kingdom's sake. In fact, uh, Jesus promised that if we follow him, we will suffer persecution just as he did. But how did the, the apostles pray? They said, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So we're to take courage from the ultimate truth of Psalm 2 to find strength and boldness for our evangelism in the face of adversity. If you are subject... Of the one true king whose government cannot be toppled, in whose kingdom is to be found all true blessing forever, then what do you have to fear from the enemies of his kingdom? And and let's be uh, clear, let's be aware of who our enemies are in this context. It's not just anyone who hurts you or oppresses you, it's those who perceive the kingship of Christ as a threat to their autonomy as a threat to their authority. A lot of times we take attacks from these enemies against us personally, as if they were assaulting our reputation or our intelligence. For example, uh, this week a friend of mine posted a, a, a graphic on Facebook that insisted that anyone who believes that homosexuality is a sin is a sexist, a chauvinist, judgmental, xenophobic, and culturally backwards. Um, and as I read through that graphic, I felt um, this strange hotness creeping up my neck. Right? And spent a lot of time thinking furiously on how to respond to my friend to prove conclusively that he was the ignorant one, the intolerant one. Um, this of course is not the right response to have so I think that the uh, Holy Spirit helped me think about it a little further and I realized you know what I am sexist I am chauvinist I am judgmental I am xenophobic and I am culturally backwards yeah pretty much all of those things Um, though I hate to admit it I wish it weren't true and I hope that those things change in my life Those are probably all true of me to some degree. But by Jesus' mercy, I'm pardoned from those things. I'm forgiven all those faults. I'm welcome in heaven as a gift of his grace. And I'm made a humble servant in his kingdom. And whether my friend was conscious of it or not, ultimately, he wasn't lashing out at me or at people like me. Ultimately, he was raging against the Lord Jesus taking aim at the holy law of his kingdom because he can't stand the thought of submitting to the word of God to divine authority. First and foremost, um, he's not my enemy. He's an enemy of the king, just as we were when Jesus died for us. That Facebook graphic uh, that scoffs at Christians is a pretty mild form of the persecution that we face, uh, but it serves to illustrate the point. The prayer of the apostles in Acts 4, as they were using Psalm 2, which can be our prayer as well, is to be heartened by the truth that the rage and the plots of even the most powerful enemies are empty, whether there are a political leaders who are plotting um, or our employers or our family members whether they can make our lives miserable or whether they can take our lives away altogether what we get from Psalm 2 is the confidence and the courage to live for God and for his Christ in this world to bear up under the pressures of those who are um, who set themselves together against God and against his son And we don't stand up against our enemies uh, with belligerence, but with grace we proclaim refuge and salvation in the king's name. We hope to defeat those enemies with love, right? Just as Jesus Christ defeated us by laying his life down for us. And how's this for encouragement Uh, using this psalm? Jesus said to the churches uh, in the vision that John had in Revelation chapter 2, And he references Psalm 2 in his vision. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, which is a reference to Christ himself. The one who continues in faith, the one who continues in submission to Jesus, in obedience to King Jesus, will rule over all things with his Lord. If you trust in Christ, if you obey the King, you will share in his heritage of the nations. You will possess the ends of the earth together with him, and you will rule as kings and queens under the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you'll rule forever. It says in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, the saints will judge the world. We're to judge angels. And in 1 Corinthians 3, all things are yours. The world, life, death, the present, the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. A while back, uh, Jerry and I went to um, church planner assessment in Vancouver, B.C., uh, where I failed miserably. You shouldn't follow me. I'm not a church planner. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I was discussing with the leaders there um, that I often suffer from the condition the Bible calls the fear of man, right? especially when it comes to doing personal evangelism. You don't have to raise your hand if you can relate to that. Uh, one of our uh, the leaders who was there, John Smed, he's planted churches up in, uh, in Vancouver and he's the kind of the leader of the church planning network up there and uh, John Smed encouraged me and he told me it's pretty simple don't be afraid of non-Christians the nations belong to Jesus he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth and if you are found in him by faith he will give you all authority in heaven and And on earth, the same authority he received from his Father to reign with him over all that he has made. Don't be afraid of non-Christians. Extend the invitation of mercy to them, just as Psalm 2 does. Exhort them to be wise and to serve the Lord with fear and with joy. Because blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that by your mercy you have helped us to submit ourselves to Christ, to his kingdom, to his gracious rule. And we're thankful that even while we were your enemies, Jesus Christ died for us. He paid for our sins with his precious blood and has set us free from all the power of the devil and planted us... uh, under your own authority. And so we, uh, we give you thanks for the work that you've done in this world, in history, to save us and to bring us into your kingdom, the kingdom of light and love, the kingdom of your grace and mercy and peace and righteousness. And we ask that you would bring that kingdom, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that um, as we look forward to that one day yet to come where Jesus will return to this earth as its rightful ruler and um, and all of the na- nations of the earth shall become the, uh, the kingdom of uh, our Lord and his Christ we look forward to that day with anticipation and with confidence that Jesus is even now ruling over all things for the sake of his church to bless us and not to harm us so we pray that as we face adversity in this world you would be with us, that you would encourage us with these great promises, and that you would help us to live as humble servants of your kingdom, pointing people to the grace that is to be found in Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you and and, uh, pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.